Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Marco Santarelli. You know, it is believed that Mayor Amschel Rothschild, a German Jewish banker and the founder of the world famous Rothschild banking dynasty, said back in the late 1700s, Give me control of a nation's money, and I care not who makes its laws. Well, today, the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency, and since 1971, it has been backed by nothing but the faith and confidence of the same U.S. dollar. So how is money, or more specifically currency, created? It's only when you discover the true answer to that question that you have that red pill or blue pill moment, to use a Hollywood movie meme, of course. That's the matrix moment because what you're about to discover on this episode is not taught in any school or university and probably for good reason. I highly encourage you to listen to this episode right through to the end. I want you to think about what you hear and maybe question some of the other long-held beliefs about things that are simply just taken for granted or accepted as fact. So before we join today's guest, a quick reminder that you can download a free copy of The Ultimate Guide to Passive Real Estate Investing. Just go to PassiveRealEstateInvesting.com and click on the free download. No one anticipates litigation, just as no one anticipates a car accident. Both just happen as part of life. And that means that asset protection is very necessary, but it can also be very affordable. Corporate Direct has protected literally thousands of clients over 30 years. And Corporate Direct, I'm proud to say, is one of our new sponsors. Corporate Direct is owned by author and attorney Garrett Sutton, who has written the bestsellers Loopholes of Real Estate and Start Your Own Corporation. And one thing I'll add is that Wyoming LLCs offer excellent asset protection, offer great privacy and great value. Wyoming LLCs are excellent parents for your other asset-holding LLCs that you have in other states. And that's exactly how I have my asset protection plan set up. So it's critically important to have asset protection to protect yourself. Visit CorporateDirect.com for more information, or you can call them at 800-600-1760 for a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporation specialist. And if you mention this show, the Passive Real Estate Investing Show, receive $100 off every LLC or corporation you form. Again, visit CorporateDirect.com for more information, or call Corporate Direct at 800-600-1760 and mention this show. Well, it's my pleasure today to welcome G. Edward Griffin to the show. Ed, as he goes by, is a well-known author, a documentary film producer, and the founder of Freedom Force International. Listed on the Who's Who in America, he is well-known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms. He has dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and the ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy, the Supreme Court, and last but not least, the United Nations. One of Ed's most influential and better-known works includes his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. Ed, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me, Marco. Much appreciated. Well, it's great to have you on. You have a very long bio. I had to actually uh, <laughs> cut it all down because you've done so much as a researcher. Well, that's what happens when you live a long time. Well, you're amazing. I mean, I, I'm not going to tell anybody your age, but I've had you know a fair share of conversations with you and dinner with you, and you're in amazing health. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I think so, too. 
I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> well, we have a very, very interesting topic to talk about here today, and it's something that most people really haven't heard much about, if anything at all. But what struck me about you is I met you a little over a year ago. We spent some time on and off over the course of a week just getting to know each other a little better. And then two months ago, you and I had dinner together, and you know we've had multiple conversations. And it seems like every time we get together, we go down these rabbit holes. Um, but you're a fascinating person. So let's start off with you sharing with our audience a little bit about yourself and then transition that into how you came to write this book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is just a fascinating title. Well, that is quite a long story in itself, but it's uh, it needs to be shortened a lot, especially when we have so little time here. Okay. Um, I think the short version is that I started off uh, heading in an entirely different direction than I wound up. And that happens, I think, to most people. Um, I went to school. Uh, I was a child actor. Okay. I don't know how that happened really, but I was in Detroit, Michigan, and um, they were auditioning for some little bratty kids to, to learn how to act on radio. So I tried out and um, I got past the initial trials. The first thing you know, I'm I'm the little kid on the Lone Ranger, for example, you know, and or the Hermit's Cave or the Ford Theater, all the programs that came out of Detroit, Michigan. I was a bratty little kid, you know, gee, dad, here come the Indians or whatever I had to say. And I went to school at the University of Michigan and I was going to go into drama. I was going to go into television. And I got it when I came out of school, I got a job at WWJ TV Detroit, which was the NBC affiliate one of the first really fully functional modern type television studios uh, in the world. And I was, uh, they called me assistant uh, director, which means I was the floor manager. I was the kid on the floor that, that threw the cues, you know, and flipped the, the reading uh, cards down so the cameras could come in and take a picture. They didn't have any, any way of putting the letters on directly into the video. You had to make a card, right. take a picture of the card, all that stuff. <laughs> That's what I did. I went to the military. I uh, I met. Uh, uh, oh, it's a long story. I wound up in. Let's cut through it. I wound up um, in Hollywood. I came out of the military. I was going to make my big mark in in Hollywood, and I got there and I discovered that there were a lot of people with greater talent than mine, who were waiting tables and uh, busting dishes. By this time, I had a beautiful wife and a couple of kids, and I was running out of money. I decided to get a real job. Went to work in the corporate world. Um, I was doing pretty good, decided I was going to climb the corporate ladder, going to be a vice president, have a penthouse apartment in New York when I retired, you know, all of the things that young people think they want to do, think they want to do when they're young, climb that ladder and have a lot of money. And then I discovered what the real world was about. I ran into some literature that questioned the integrity of the United Nations. And that was sacrosanct for me because I'd been taught in school that the UN was our last best hope for peace. So I began to uh, take an interest, and I thought, this can't be true, what I had just learned. I went to the library. Believe it or not, I went to the library. I thought when I got out of school, I would never go back to the <laughs> library. That was like a torture chamber for people that, that were bad, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> a punishment for being bad. And so, anyway, to make a long story a little shorter, I discovered that what they were saying about the UN was true. It was not at all what I had been taught in school. I became a crusader. I discovered I had a crusader gene. I quit my job with the um, insurance company I was with. My wife almost had a fit. And uh, I launched out on my own, and I was going to save the world. 
than explaining to everybody what was really going on in the world. And that was when I started to produce little, very low budget um, documentary films. In those days, we called them film strips. They were just single pictures that you show on the screen. There was narration over it. And there was a, a beep sound and an operator had to turn the crank and the picture would change. And that's how I started. I did those. I went into 16 millimeter film documentaries. Wow. I started to produce my own. And I, I took an interest in inflation. I wanted to do a documentary on inflation. That led me to the Federal Reserve System, which is the engine of inflation. I started giving speeches on the Federal Reserve System. I gave a, a one-day a seminar called a crash course on money. I decided I better quit doing that because I didn't know enough about the real markets. So I enrolled in the College for Financial Planning, which is a uh, school in Denver. I got my CFP designation, which is like a uh, like a CPA, except it's for financial planning. I never wanted to become a financial planner. I just wanted to learn about the real markets. And then I wrote my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. The second look at the Federal Reserve. It was just, as you can see, it was just one step after the other. Right. It seems though I had no idea where I was going, which is true. I was being propelled by the things I discovered. Trip over something. Said, well, that's interesting. I better find out about that. So my path of life was kind of zigzaggy. And here I am. I'm still tripping over things that interest me and causing me to go in different directions. Yeah, that's just amazing. So you opened up a door, you found a trap door, opened it up, found another door, went through that one. And and three more doors after that and so forth. Yeah, that's how life is. Yeah, very true. And, you know, those doors one after another, you can call just a rabbit hole because it just kept going and going. You kept discovering new and new things that probably surprised you as you went. So, Oh, yes. More than surprise, amaze and, and just blow your mind at the things you can discover, especially when you realize that many of the things you thought you knew and the most revered beliefs you have turn out to be wrong. Right. It's shocking. Right. And then you think, well, how come I got this wrong information? Who, who was giving me this wrong information is a natural question. And in every case, I found out it was coming from people or institutions which had great authority, authority over people, authority over the culture, authority over institutions. And I began to realize that I get it now. This is a power game. This is this certain groups have an interest in keeping you misinformed and keeping Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Um, right. They have a strong interest because it gives them power over you. And boy, that was a turning point because before that I was kind of a snowflake as they call the kids today. I kind of believed, you know, everything was fine. Nobody was out. Nobody uh, had any ulterior motives or hidden agendas. Everybody was good and all that sort of thing. Now, by the way, I still believe that most people are that way. Right. I'm drunk, but I didn't realize what a significant underbelly there was in society of people who are not that way. And it seems that they're the ones that gradually climb up and claw their way into these positions of authority. Right, right. There, there are dozens of things we could discuss just you're giving me flashbacks to our dinner, which was about three hours long. And we were just talking about all kinds of things, individualism versus collectivism and just all kinds of stuff. I mean, we could, we could talk for hours. Let's kind of stay focused on the Fed here. So the Fed or, you know, short for the Federal Reserve, the Fed is like one of those things that it's always there. It's in the news. It's in your face. It's in your wallet. And people don't even realize that it's just omnipresent, but it's very misunderstood. 
your book is so all-encompassing that it really helps to explain the very roots of all modern American wars, depressions, economic booms, and most importantly, the darkest, best-kept secrets of our international banking system. So for people listening and 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 for those that have watched the movie The Matrix, which is one of my favorite movies, just an unbelievable movie, there's a scene at the beginning where Morpheus says to Neo, you take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So for those of you who haven't taken that proverbial red pill, let's start off by defining and describing what the Federal Reserve really is. Well, it's one of those things, uh, Marco, that I mentioned a moment ago that I thought I understood at the surface level, but it was completely the opposite of what I thought. I thought, and most people today still think, that the Federal Reserve System Mm -hmm. is an agency of the federal government, and it's there to regulate the banks and protect the people of America and to stabilize the economy and uh, do all good things for our society and particularly for America. I love that understanding of it. That's what I was taught in school. It made me feel good. But boy, what I found out was quite different. (laughs) Uh, I got to reading the foundation documents of the Fed. I learned about the people who created it. I learned about the meeting where it was created on Jekyll Island, by the way. That's why I called the book The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is a private island. In those days, it was off the coast of Georgia. It was where the wealthiest people in the U.S. had their what they called cottages, uh, their winter cottages, where most of them left the environs of New York. Um, where it got very cold and they went down to Georgia where it's kind of nice and balmy in December and January. They had these estates there and they had a clubhouse called the Jekyll Island Club. And that's where the, the some of the wealthiest men in the world gathered in 1910. And in conditions of great secrecy, they created the Federal Reserve System there. And uh, when I got into all of that, I thought, you know, when people do things in secret, there's usually something to hide. So I was curious as to what it was they were hiding. And to my amazement, I found out that they were very uh, upfront about it in their own writings and their own biographies and in some of the articles that they had written for um, magazines and newspapers after the event, after the Federal Reserve was created. They were very verbose about about it. They, they, uh, They talked about it, they bragged about it then but in the day when it was being um, formed, they were very secretive about it. And so what I discovered now to the point, I discovered that the Federal Reserve System is a cartel. It's no different than an oil cartel or banana cartel. Uh, it just happens to be a banking cartel. It's a group of private interests who came together formed this shared monopoly over the whole banking system to control their own industry to their advantage, to prevent competition so they could not have to compete with each other. They would have nicer profit margins. They would be free of regulation by government. And so in order to do that, they drafted a cartel agreement in secret on Jekyll Island in 1910, spent the next three years trying to promote it to Congress as a means of controlling the banks and helping the American people. And most people didn't know, including the congressmen themselves, did not know that the document was written by the banks. 
That was the secret. That was the reason for going to Jekyll Island. They drafted this thing. So what basically happened in short is the biggest banks in America drew up their own cartel agreement. They went to Washington. They got this big fat eraser. This is figuratively speaking, of course. And they erased the words that said cartel agreement. And instead, they wrote in Federal Reserve Act. They sold it to Congress. The stupid congressman voted it into law. And now a cartel, a private cartel agreement between private banks was given the power to issue the nation's money and was given the power to control all banking, supposedly for the American people. But it was a document drafted by the banks themselves to make sure that the American people would never have the power to interfere with the affairs of the banks. That's what I discovered. And that's what I wrote about in The Creature from Jekyll Island. So clearly that that truly defines a cartel, but a lot of people will claim that the Fed was or is a conspiracy. And I don't mean a conspiracy theory. I mean, literally a conspiracy. And most um, uh, dictionary definitions use the word conspiracy and describe it as two or more people coming together. Uh, Secondly, they use methods of deceit or deception to achieve a goal. And then thirdly, um, often this is the result of unethical or illegal behavior. Can you elaborate on that? Would you say that they meet that definition, that three-part definition? Yeah, that is a, a certainly the generalized accepted definition of a conspiracy. And uh, it's clear to me, at least, that uh, uh, it is uh, certainly involving two or more people. So number one is obviously met. And they do use uh, methods of deception uh, and deceit indirection uh, to conceal what they're trying to do to make it seem like something else. But when it comes to item number three, it's not illegal. They've done nothing illegal because they've written the laws. Right. See, that's part of the genius of this thing. If you write the laws to suit what you want to do, then you don't have to do anything illegal because it makes it legal. So that part is how they escape the classic definition of a conspiracy. Now, in most minds of citizens like us, we think what they've done should be illegal. It certainly is unethical in our view and immoral, but they don't look at it that way. So in their mind, it's not a conspiracy because there's nothing unethical about it. They think they're they're helping us. They're, they say at least that they think they're helping us. They're trying to uh, stabilize the economy for us idiots that don't know how to do it ourselves. Right. So they're <laughs> doing what they have to do for our own good. That's always the mantra of collectivism. They They make you a slave for your own good, they say. Mm-hmm. So they argue it and defend it from that side. But I think for most people who are being controlled and who are being legally plundered by this system <clears throat> would definitely decide and say that it was an unethical system. So <clears throat> in, in the point is that in the minds of most people, in the minds of society, in, in real definition, it to me, it is a conspiracy, but in the minds of the people doing it themselves, it is not. So what are the Fed's true goals? Well, the true goals are to, what's the goal of any uh, cartel? It's to advance the interests of the cartel sure. in whatever way possible. So those are its true goals. And of course, it has to always uh, conceal that from the voters who still think that the Fed is a government agency. They still think that. 
And so when they have these hearings in Washington and they have the politicians sitting up there in the dais, the big leather chairs up behind them and so forth, and then the chairman of the Federal Reserve sits down below at a table, a bare table, it kind of looks like, you know, like the government is in charge and the Federal Reserve chairman is sort of meekly answering questions. That's how it looks. It looks that way. It's supposed to look that way. It's not really that way at all. In fact, you, if you really want to go to the Internet and look at some of those hearings, occasionally you'll find some congressman or senator ask a question of the Fed chairman, and the Fed chairman would say, hmm, well, I'm not going to answer that question. And that's it. <laughs> they never say, what do you mean you're not going to answer the question? Right. No, not, it's, it's not in the best interest of the uh, system. We, we're not going to answer that question. But we'll say this, and then they go on, and then they make it seem okay. But if you look, you'll see that there's, Congress has absolutely zero, zero authority and power over the Federal Reserve System, which was designed to be and is an independent structure governing body, given its power by a passive Congress that hopefully didn't know what they were doing. And that's what we have to live with. So I don't know if I answered your question, but that the it's easy to see that the whole purpose of the Fed is not to help the American people, but to preserve the interests and the independence of the Fed. And if, if there's a big crisis and there's a money collapse, who gets the money? Congress votes what? To, to allow the Federal Reserve, to allow the Federal Reserve itself, to create money out of nothing to give to the banks. What they don't realize is that when they say the word Federal Reserve, they're really talking about the banks. They're not talking about a government agency. By the time you read it in the newspaper, it seems like, oh, well, the government uh, created money and they're giving it to the banks. No, no, that's not what happened. What happened is the politicians said, yes, let's do this. And the and the banks created the money and gave it to themselves. That's what really happened. And once you understand the mechanism, it's, it's the greatest legalized scam imaginable. And it's been going on for years and people allow it to happen because they have no understanding of uh, its origin, its its motivation, and certainly no understanding of how it works. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. There's such a high level of ignorance when it comes to the Federal Reserve and how the monetary system actually works. You know, the Fed has its stated goals and unstated goals. The unstated goals are what, you know, you just said, that they're trying to advance their own best interests as a, as a cartel. Um, but, you know, what they publicly say is that, well, we're here to control, you know, interest rates, uh, inflation, stability of the economy. And really, I don't think they have much, if any, control over those three things that, you know, they're reactionary, not, you know, they're not preventative. They're, they're very reactionary to what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, they have very few levers to pull, but we'll get to that in a minute here. Um, I like to jokingly say that the Federal Reserve, this is what I'm talking to my friends, of course, you know, there's nothing federal and there's nothing on reserve. <laughs> it's like a, it's like the opposite of what we're actually calling it. That was part of the design. And that's one of the things you discover when you start researching the founding documents. These people talk about things like that. And it's in the printed record. They said, well, you know, what, what are we going to create here? We're going to create something that in the encyclopedia is called a central bank. That's the name given to it. Uh, it's not a bank at all, but that's the name that it's been given to it. That's the name that came out of London when they were copying uh, the Bank of England. Well, it is and, a central uh, bank. We call it a central bank, yeah. And they're copying the Bank of England, but the American voters and the congressmen in America did not want a central bank. They knew what 
not quite sure what it was, but they knew that's what they had over there in England. And they thought, no, this is America. We want something that's unique. We want our own type of system. And so the guys who were drafting this cartel agreement discussed that. And they said, okay, we can't call it a central bank. So what are we going to call it? Well, we'll make it sound like it's American. So we'll call it federal. People will think that means federal government. And then we'll call it reserve. Oh, they like the word reserve. We'll put that in there. And we'll call it a bank. It's not a bank. It's a cartel of banks. And it's uh, and on and on and on. They were very cunning and, and very brilliant when they designed the Federal Reserve, even to the selection of its name. Yeah, very crafty for sure. And I think it was Shakespeare that said that a rose by any other name is still a rose. Mm-hmm. So a central bank is still a central bank regardless of what you call it, right? A cartel is always a cartel, even if you call it the Federal Reserve System. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, there's probably a lot of people listening to this right now and thinking, oh, well, I find that hard to believe, or, or I believe it, but it's just unbelievable. Or, um, or surely you might have some of your facts wrong. Has anybody come forward ever and said that you've got the story wrong and let us correct you on this? Uh, that's an interesting question because I lived in dire fear of that because I had no knowledge. I didn't come from a banking background. That wasn't what I learned in school and all that stuff. So I thought, oh man, I, oh, all right. I spent seven years researching it and, and reading all the books and interviewing people with experience and all of that. I said, oh man, I'm sure I'm gonna make a mistake. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a fool of myself. So when the book was finally published, I was very proud of it. I was very happy, oh man, this is finally out. But I thought, oh, it's just a matter of time before somebody's gonna ex- expose me as a fraud because I'm sure I must have stumbled somewhere and gotten it wrong. Well, the the days went by and then the weeks and then the months and nobody, nobody corrected anything. And there were a lot of academics that got my book I knew because I could see the sales receipts or the invoices go out, the universities were buying it. I, we, we sent one copy directly to the Federal Reserve System itself. I knew that they had one in their library. And uh, I was waiting for the, you know, the hammer to come. And it never, never came. Except one day, uh, about two years after the publication of the book, I was on tour, a book tour. And I wound up on a, a little town in the East Coast. Don't remember the show or anything, but it was a radio program. I was invited to uh, be on the radio and talk about my book. That's why I was there, so I was happy to go. And when I got to the studio, uh, I saw that I was not the only person to be interviewed. They had a college professor there, and it was going to be a debate, not an, an interview. I thought, oh man, here it comes. This, they, they, they set the trap for me now. I'm going to be through after this. <laughs> so, okay, uh, it's like a man going to the gallows. We started the radio program and, and the, the uh, radio host said, all right, Mr. Griffin, we'll start uh, with you. Will you please present what your position is about Federal Reserve or something like that? So, okay, I took a deep breath and um, I sort of blurted it all out. Probably had about maybe four or five minutes to summarize it, pretty much like I've been doing here. And although I went on to explain some of the effects of it, like inflation, the loss of purchasing power and all of that kind of thing and how it hurt the small person. And so finally, um, it came time to turn the microphone over to the college professor. And so the host said, well, Professor Sonzo, what, what's your response to this? And there was a long pause. And this is what he said. He said, well, what he says is true, 
but we're living well, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> that's a deflection if I ever heard that one. That was it. That was it. And to this day, that's basically the only counter argument there is to anything I've written because the facts are there and they're drawn from the people themselves who created that history. Sure. These people who love the Federal Reserve admitting themselves what they were creating. So the facts are there. All they can say is, well, in spite of the fact that you're plundering the little guy, in spite of the fact that we've lost purchasing power, in spite of the fact that all these crimes are being committed, we're living well, so that makes it okay. You right. Know? That's pretty much. And what they don't say with that statement is, who are the we who are living well? Maybe the academics, maybe the people in government, certainly the people in the banking system are living well because they're the beneficiaries of this system. But the little guy working for fixed income or hourly wage or salary with his with his purchasing power being stolen by inflation, he is not doing so well. And we're seeing that in our world today. That's that's pretty widespread, actually. So I'm sure there's people listening to you, listening to us and listening to this that are starting to get a little upset, maybe a little cheesed off and realizing that, OK, this is not sounding so good. Well, I think there's going to be some people who are going to get even more upset as we go along here, because as we dig deeper into this, you'll realize that this is such a sham. So let's get this straight. The U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve are basically swapping IOUs, and they do this through the big banks as middlemen. And when we see the Federal Reserve busy buying U.S. bonds and other paper assets or whatever they're using the money for that they've printed out of thin air, essentially... Uh, the party on the other end of the transaction, like a bank like J.P. Morgan or whoever, they're turning around these 100% win ratios. They never lose because they're they're essentially brokering this exchange of currency coming from the Federal Reserve going to the U.S. Treasury. And so they're essentially, quote unquote, making millions or even billions of dollars. It calls into question how ethical that may be. But essentially what we're saying is the Federal Reserve is plundering the people legally. Well, yeah, cutting through all of that, your last statement is definitely accurate in my view. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first one to use that phrase, but it's, it became one of my most popular phrases early on when I discovered how the system really works. Yes, everything is done legally. The Federal Reserve is given the power to act on behalf of the government. The government enforces those rules and regulations uh, passed by the Federal Reserve. They, in fact, they put the Federal Reserve Act into law. So the politicians took the cartel agreement, made it law. And the, that agreement, by the way, has been amended over 100 times since it was passed in uh, 1913. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I am sure, having read those, many of those original documents, that the power of the Fed today far exceeds what even the founders dreamed that it might do when they put it together. Every time it's amended, a little more of the restrictions are removed and more power is given to them. It used to be that in the beginning of the Fed, the money, even though it was issued by the banks now instead of the government, if you know, let me just pause on that. You notice in the old bills, if you go to the uh, Museum of Money, you'll see that the, the money said United States Treasury across the top. Right. That's where the money came from the government. But when the Federal Reserve Act was passed, now the money changed. It says, it says Federal Reserve note on it doesn't say treasury it says federal reserve so the money is issued by the federal reserve now so and that's private so the anyway when when that happened even in the beginning there was a little bit of gold required to be behind it right which a little bit is better than none 
But every year, there, these amendments are added to the bill, and some of those restrictions are removed, and new powers are given to it, so that today, you could hardly recognize the Federal Reserve with its unlimited power to turn anything into money that they want to. I mean, it used to be you could just turn you know, debt, government bonds and, and notes into into money. Now, the Federal Reserve could probably take uh, wadded up uh, chewing gum and convert it into money if they wanted to. They'd find some legal way to just to see that it fits the definition of their powers. They have no limits whatsoever on the ability to create money out of nothing. Now, think about this. Creating money out of nothing sounds pretty bizarre, but that's that's the whole basis of the banking system. Now, however, don't think that they just use that money to spend for their own purposes. They don't. They create the money out of nothing and they loan it into existence. Right. So it's really not out of nothing. The money is backed by debt. So it's even worse than nothing because it means there's a debt relationship. Right. Some, someone owes somebody <laughs> and then there's interest on top of that. So it, now, now you just you nailed it. The interest is the name of the game here because the money that goes into, into circulation through loans now brings interest into the banks. And this is where the river of gold starts to come back. The banks performed a service, they like to call it, of creating money, which helps the economy. Everybody's got money to spend now. We can buy things. We can invest. Oh, it's great for the economy. But all of that money, every nickel and dime of it, and penny of it, is earning interest for the banking system. And so it's the interest on nothing that's really the key to their great uh, scam. Interest on nothing. Right. Absolutely. And so just to clarify something you had said, uh, money back in the day was truly money. It was a claim on silver or gold. And it literally said that on the bill that you carried in your wallet. Then in 1971, just to fast forward, the dollar was decoupled from gold. President Nixon at the time took it, took it off the gold standard. And ever since then, we've been on this truly debt-based monetary system. And the result of all that is the printing of the U.S. dollar creates inflation and instability. So for those people who are listening to this, many being real estate investors, they understand what a note is. It's essentially a, a promise to pay. It's a, it's a mortgage is nothing more than a, a note. Um, and so that means that there's debt. It, there's monies owed and there's interest on top of it. So this is the system we have today. And this is essentially what you're saying, Ed, is that we have a debt-based monetary system. And the more currency that we create and put into the system, the more interest is owed. And it sounds like it's a perpetual spiral, call it either upward or downward, but we continually get further and further into debt with more and more interest owed. Is that a true statement or, or not? I think it's a very true statement. And it's even worse than that because it's it's gone so far now that there's no way in the world that it can ever be rewound. It is on a path, in my opinion now, that cannot be reversed. It has only one place to go, and that's to total destruction. It's, it's on the self-destruction path. Yeah, this is not guesswork. We have plenty of history to base that judgment. This is not new. This sort of thing, and to a lesser degree, has gone on over and over again throughout history, ever since the creation of money that could be uh, represented by something other than an asset of itself. In other words, the minute you, the first example of, of paper money took place back in ancient China when they used the, the inner bark of trees and they cut it into squares and impressed symbols on it. That was the first example of what we might call paper money. Right. And that was 
recorded by Marco Polo in his travels. That was the beginning of this whole thing. When you could hold up something which had no value or very limited real value for anything other than medium of exchange and turn that into very valuable things that you could, you know, represent houses and, and cattle and, and acres of land and boats and so forth. Uh, that was the beginning of the skullduggery right there. So um, this has happened before. And every time that nations have adopted that or started on that path, they've always come to the point where they had to go over the cliff. Right. Because that's where the path goes. It comes to an end. It can't go any further. And into the, into the chasm they go. We're definitely headed in that direction. And the only issue left in my mind is uh, how hard a fall is it going to be? And can we pick ourselves up afterwards and learn a lesson from it? And next time around, are we going to build a system that does not re-make uh, these same errors? Right. That's what I'm hopeful to create. When, when, when you say we're headed to total destruction, are you referring to hyperinflation or something different? Well, I'm referring to hyperinflation. Uh, there are other uh, possible scenarios, but the end result is still the same. Nothing works. That's the bottom line. And I'm afraid that what we're heading into now um, is, uh, is something that is new in history. Throughout history to this point, we've always had symbols of money that uh, were either assets or they were representative of assets, but they were always tangible um, or not quite so. In, in today's world, we have digital money. Most of our money is digital, but there are, um, there are ways of converting them into paper, in other words, we have Federal Reserve notes, even though what's behind them is digital, you can get hold of these papers and you sure. can stuff them in your mattress or whatever you want, you have physical representation. Exactly. On the edge now of digital currency, really 100% cryptocurrency, where there won't even be pieces of paper. It's just all on your computer or on your smartphone. And this, this is a very interesting uh, turning point because it opens up the possibility of having a system without any tangible representation of money at all. And it, it opens up the possibility that people like you and I have no money except what the authorities say we have. We cannot say, oh, you're wrong. Look, I've got my hoard, or this is my stack of $100 bills or, or anything like that. We can say, look, this is our wallet, our Bitcoin wallet. And it says we got 2,000 units there, and they throw a switch, and your Bitcoin wallet is empty. You know? So we're, we're approaching a period in history where this, it looks like it's not only possible, but it looks like it's coming. And that opens up a very scary scenario because it means that in a totalitarian system, everybody will be completely subservient to the authorities who control that switch to determine whether they will be able to buy food, whether they will be able to travel, whether they can have clothes, where they can pay rent or, or have coupons that are worth rental credit so they can have shelter. All kinds of things like that mean that authority of totalitarian authority theoretically can control, the, control every aspect of our lives. And that is a situation that be pretty hard to escape, even with a so-called revolutionary war. I mean, how do you escape that with, with no means to, to acquire even food? So I'm beginning to wonder that this time when we come to the cliff, it might be a different cliff. It might, 
it might be a whirlpool. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something to indicate that it's going to be different, I, I think, than anything we've realized before. And it may be good or bad, but it's uh, certainly unknown. That's a pretty scary thought of losing complete control over access to whatever value you have in a currency. You can't buy food, pay for rent, pay for your mortgage, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, if you don't have, if you don't hold it, you don't own it. You know, that's the saying with gold, right? So if it's all digital, you, you have no control over it. You, you're accessing it through whatever portal or governing system that may be. And, you know, that's often going to be the central bank. But, and, you know, that reminds me of George Orwell's book, 1984. I think that's the one that I'm thinking of where, you know, you, you've just basically lost lost control of, of virtually everything and you're in a totalitarian system. That would be a terrible thing. Well, we're, we're actually, pr we're pretty deep into that right now. Uh, Orwell's book was uh, really famous for what he called the memory hole. If they didn't like uh, a fact or historical event, it, they just, uh, they had the ability to uh, remove all mention of it from all history books and all the uh, periodicals. And it just disappeared, went into the memory hole, gone, never happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's been going on for many years and that's a subject for another day. <laughs> um, okay, so let's kind of start putting, you know, a wrapping around this. Um, do you find it coincidental that the Income Tax Act was actually passed in the same year as the Federal Reserve Act? That's a pretty big coincidence. Well, a very big coincidence. And actually, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think the two are certainly the, the political personalities behind both of those acts were the same. They were Senator Aldridge and his crew. They were the international banking uh, interests. They were the big uh, uh, industrialists. They were the money powers. The people that held control of the money system in those days were behind the Federal Reserve uh, system for obvious reasons, which we've been discussing. And also the, they wanted an income tax um, for, that's a big topic by itself, but the income tax is, was a way of not only um, controlling society by rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. If you write the tax laws, you can reward your friends, give them loopholes and benefits and, and subsidies, and you can punish your enemies by taxing them out of existence, all in the name of you know doing good. Not only that, um, but you can uh, you can escape taxation yourself by those very loopholes. And so we found that the, the big names that were creating the income tax in 1913 were at the same time creating tax-exempt foundations so that they could put their massive wealth into these foundations, technically and legally giving up personal ownership, but, but in reality still controlling them through their uh, interlocking directorates because they they made sure that the people who were on the boards of directors were their friends or their employees or indebted to them in some way. So they still had total control over these empires, but on paper, they did not own them, didn't have that ownership certificate. So that was a means of protecting their inheritance as it goes from one generation to the other, to the other, to the other, while all the rest of the poor stiffs out there were paying inheritance taxes and all other kinds of taxes and being kept down. So this, this, we're back to the beginning of our conversation. Uh, you know, I learned and I still am learning that many of the things I thought I knew were not true. 
And I'm, I'm daily horrified to realize how, how many things remain in society that we thought were harmless. We thought they were benign or maybe even helpful. But now we mm -hmm. discover that they were the work of very cunning people who were authorities and had great influence over the creation of our laws and our political system. And they have been taking us to the cleaners daily. And in many cases, we didn't even know it. That's right. Yeah, that's true in so many levels. So really, we, you know, we can't unravel what has been done. We can't change that system. We just have to live in the system, just like Neo does in the, in the movie The Matrix. He understands what The Matrix is. He sees it. He understands it. He knows what it is. But he knows how to live within that system. And that's what we need to do as individuals, as investors. And so we have this Federal Reserve System. We're putting this currency every year into the monetary system. It creates inflation. We know it's there. As investors, we know how to deal with it, whether you have hard assets like silver and gold or you're buying one of my favorite asset classes, which is income-producing real estate, which is a phenomenal hedge against inflation. So we know how to control that piece of, uh, of it. Um, but would you say that the Federal Reserve creates instability in our economic system? I, I, I would think it does. At least that's my belief. Uh, well, yeah, is there I any definitely. There's no doubt in my mind. It's the great uh, destabilizer of the economy. I am of the definite school, the laissez-faire school, the free market school. That the best, the best regulator of an economy, is the unfettered. Um, limitless number of people in the market making personal decisions, millions of them at a time, all playing against each other, one interest against the other interest, it all balances out. And, and all these unknown factors show up in the numbers of millions and millions of uh, transactions, turns out to be the best for everybody. And, and they can respond to changing events much quicker that way than if you have a committee of seven so-called very wise men sitting up, let's say, what are we gonna do with the economy? Are we gonna control rents or we're gonna uh, increase the money supply? N there's no human or group of humans with that much intelligence that can know what the answer is. It has to be played out in the free market. But beyond that, you can be sure that of the seven of these wise men, at least six of them are, are gonna be corrupted right to their eyebrows and they'll be <laughs> in the public because they have that power to make those decisions. So this, the free market is the, is the only, only answer. So um, as long as we have the concept in place that these important uh, matters relating to the economy have to be decided by political or professional review, we've lost the game to start off with. We just, the solution is to get these institutions off of our back not to give them more power to, or find wiser men on the things we've been trying to do all these years. We have to break that. Otherwise, there's nothing we can do. Even the investment in real estate eventually is going to come to a grinding halt when somebody decides, well, nobody deserves to own real estate. It should be owned by the people. All real estate starting next Tuesday will be owned by the state on behalf of the people. And that the game is over. And we, we would support that because we said, yeah, we need these decision makers making these important decisions for us. No, we're going in the wrong direction. We got to go back the other way, right. free market. I would, disagree, I would agree with you when you said we have to live within the system. But I would disagree with the concept that we shouldn't try to change the system because I do believe, as I said a moment ago, right. unless we do change it, unless we get rid of the Federal Reserve System, uh, eventually, how do I... Uh, I think the best way to say it is that 
if we don't if we don't abolish the Federal Reserve, if America doesn't abolish the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve will abolish America. It's that simple. Eventually, we have to break that system. Right. No, I totally agree with you. It was the whole conversation we had over dinner about collectivism, which is what you're talking about, and individualism. So I don't, I don't disagree that we have to come together as individuals and create a, a strong group or coalition that can reverse or change or improve the situation we have. I, I never said that it was impossible to fix. I just don't know what that's going to look like, but I know you have a, a movement and a, a collective of people coming together. And I believe that's what Freedom Force International is all about. And maybe you can take a minute to talk to us about that. But let me ask you one more question here as we wrap up, and then you can talk about um, you know, what you're doing in the Red Pill Expo, which ties in very well with what we're just talking about here. You know, we're we're investors, more specifically real estate investors, but we're investors. And, you know, we obviously want to protect ourselves and, 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 and move ourselves forward. And this is obviously going to be a loaded question, but what would you say we can do as individual investors to protect ourselves? And I may have answered that to some degree, but I'd like to hear it from you. Well, I think the answer to that in at the same time is very complicated and also very simple. Complicated in the details, but simple in the principle. Um, the best thing we can do in the short term, while we're working on changing the system or reforming the system, we do have to survive in the meantime. Sure. I think the best thing to do in that, in that stage is to make sure that we're not dependent on fiat money to whatever extent, extent we can get rid of that. By that I mean, in our country, I'm talking about U.S. dollars. Um, it's very fiat. It's losing its purchasing power by the minute. So anytime we have a large amount of our assets tied up in terms of dollars, whether that be uh, bank accounts, savings accounts, uh, mutual funds, uh, or, or, or anything like that, or even insurance policies that are the value is expressed in terms of dollars, um, we're losing uh, the game very rapidly. It's, uh, it's like standing on the railroad track and you can see the, the engine coming down. The, the headlight is getting bigger and bigger and it's coming right at us. What do we do? We, we just stand there, look at the engine approach? No. <laughs> we got to get right. off of that track. And that track is the fiat money track. So I would... I would think that it's obvious to everyone that uh, to whatever extent is possible, we should take whatever assets we have, whatever we might term as our wealth, our savings, and put them into something other than fiat money. It'd be tangible assets. Real estate is one of those. Uh, gold and silver is one. Uh, commodities, I mean, I, I, I guess if, if somebody was in a business and they were making widgets, wouldn't be a bad idea to fill up your warehouse full of widgets because it might have cost you four dollars now to make them uh, but next year it might cost you seven dollars and the next year twenty two dollars so make as many as you can now at four and so you got your your value stored in the widgets you don't if you don't make widgets and you have some money maybe you can buy a, a warehouse full of cheap white wine or something i don't know something sure. of tangible value that you 
are pretty sure that people will always want. And, uh, and cheap white wine is one of those things. Uh, but I'm, I'm speaking in generalities now. It's the details yeah. that are difficult, but the principle, I think, is pretty simple. Yeah. And, and one thing our listeners know and like about inflation um, so I guess if there's any benefit that comes out of the Federal Reserve and the inflationary environment that we're in is the fact that if we, if we own a real estate portfolio and it is purchased to a large degree with mortgage debt, that debt doesn't adjust for inflation. So every year that goes by as we lose purchasing power, that debt in, in, in real terms is actually losing value. So it's becoming less valuable or cheaper every year. So we're actually paying it off with inflated dollars as every year goes by. So that $100,000 mortgage today, next year is worth $95,000. The next year after that, it's worth you know 90,000, whatever it may be. So as real estate investors, we actually t benefit from the inflation that's created in our monetary system because that debt is actually becoming less valuable as time goes on. Yet the rents that we have on the properties continue to go up and they pretty much keep in step with inflation. So we're getting ahead by protecting ourselves, holding a portfolio of investment real estate. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's a fact of life. And uh, that's one of the reasons that real estate has always been a very attractive area to, right. to park your fiat or take your fiat money and put it there instead for that very reason. And right. Now you could argue that um, it's unfair, uh, but most of the laws on our land are unfair. And so it's the question of taking advantage of what you can to survive. Remember, this is, in my view, at least a short-term strategy while we're trying to repair, right. heal the system. <clears throat> right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I mean, it's a way to keep... It's, it's a way to protect yourself and deal with the system we live in by essentially c controlling your own local economy while we work on the bigger picture as individuals coming together to better the system. Yeah, and there's kind of a philosophical uh, quirk to this whole issue because uh, it makes sense that if a person is doing well under a corrupt system, if you're, if you're making money, if it's to your great benefit, uh, even though you say the system is corrupt, your enthusiasm for changing it will be diminished. <laughs> you might well, that's true. You might not fight quite so hard to eliminate the system that is so profitable to you personally, even though you know that for the rest of the people it's it's terrible. But because it's so profitable to you, it's it's sort of a philosophical and moral dilemma that true. is introduced by systems like this. So that's a good segue. You talk about, you know, the system we live in. Um, talk about your Red Pill Expo. Just give us a highlight of what that is. Unfortunately, I, I'm not going to be able to make it this year. If I can change my schedule, I will. But tell us about your Red Pill Expo, when it is, wh what it is, and where it is. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Thank you, Marco. By the way, before I do it, I might add that you don't have to attend to be able to uh, to see Ben because we will the recording of the whole thing will be available to anybody who's a student, enrolled student in a Red Pill University, which is okay. very, very inexpensive to do. So uh, everybody will be able to see the whole thing. What the Red Pill University is, is all of your listeners know about the, the meme. Take the Red Pill, break the illusion, see life the way it really is. And so the Red Pill Expo is exactly that. We we're bringing together this year about 28 uh, experts in their own fields 
who have themselves taken the red pill on some important issue, usually involving their personal lives or their profession. And uh, like Morpheus in the movie and Neo, uh, they want to share this information with their fellow homo sapiens, get them out of the matrix. And um, this is our third one coming up. The first two uh, were smashing successes. I mean, we've never, never had successes like this before, I have to tell you. Normally, we're out there trying to get people to hey, listen to this serious story. We've got to defend our liberty. The economy's going to pieces. You know, we've got a problem here and a problem <laughs> there. Show some responsibility, won't you? you know? Nobody wants to hear that. But uh, when you change that around and talk about the red pill meme, and uh, all of that, it's, it's a little more accessible. It sounds like it's a little more entertaining, which it is. And it also opens up a lot of fields that we hadn't thought about uh, being in the red pill category. For example, this came to mind now. One of my favorite films that I produce is called The Discovery of Noah's Ark, okay? Well, what's that got to do with freedom or money or anything? Nothing, it's just an archeological or a, uh, historical event. Uh, some people think it's a, a religious event or at least related to religious texts and so forth. I don't quite see it that way as much as a historical event. But anyway, no matter how you look at it, it's extremely interesting. Did Noah's Ark actually exist? Was there really a global flood or was it just a, a local flood in, in the Euphrates area? Um, <laughs> what's the evidence? Uh, well, is there any evidence? Well, anyway, these things, you know, uh, there's a uh, as a book we sell on our website. It's not going to be part of the Red Pill this year, but it will be next year. It's called The Sinking of the Titanic. And I, I want to put on a program called The Titanic Didn't Sink. And that's a shocker. Why? What do you mean it didn't sink? Okay, everybody knows the Titanic sank. But wouldn't you be interested in if you found out that it was an insurance fraud and that they had changed the names? There were two sister ships. And it was the sister ship that went down so that they could collect the insurance on the damaged ship that was uninsurable. And it was all done by JP Morgan uh, behind his control of the White Lines, which was the ship, um, the company that built uh, the uh, Titanic. Uh, is there evidence for that? You know, so uh, what I'm saying is that there are a lot of fields out there that maybe are more historic than they are uh, uh, essential to our daily lives today. But by dealing with the red pill, it opens up all of this. And so it's uh, quite fascinating. Now, let's be honest. Most of our topics are about issues that profoundly affect our lives today. We're talking about money, banking, health, and uh, wars, education, all of these things. And um, so anybody that really is interested in what's really going on in the world, and the extent to which they are being fooled and probably manipulated and most likely plundered and would like to know about that and maybe find a way to eliminate that aspect of it, this is the place to come. It's the Red Pill Expo, and it'll be held in June 7, 8, and 9 in Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, if you want to learn more, come to the website, which is uh, Red Pill Expo. Redpillexpo.net. You'll see all the speakers there, some amazing speakers, amazing topics, and people are coming from all around the world, and uh, you'll have a chance to meet some amazing people and make friends. And frankly, we're trying to do something more than just 
find what the truth is. We're trying to build a coalition. Marco, as you have said, we have to do something about this and not just survive, which is important, but for the long term, we have to, we have to defeat these forces of evil. And so part of our reason for doing this is to help people discover each other, find out that they're not alone, that there are more people out there than you can possibly imagine who are aware or are partially aware and want to do something about this. And this is a chance to start building coalitions and start pushing back. Based on the body of work that you've done and the goodness in your heart and how I've come to know you and just the great character you are, I highly recommend and endorse this Red Pill Expo. I I really encourage people to go if you can go or at least just sign up online and and just watch it virtually and be able to reference it later because it's going to be an eye-opener. A lot of the stuff is a mind-bender, but that's what I love about the movie uh, the Matrix, it's a great meme, and there's so many great metaphors that come out of that movie. In fact, one of one of my greatest experiences in this year has been actually with you in a theater watching uh, The Matrix together. You know, the, here's the guy who wrote, you know, the creature from Jekyll Island, and it, there's just so many interesting takeaways, and, and and just to be watching that movie with you was just an incredible experience. So, I want to say to the people listening to this, if you haven't watched that movie, definitely watch it. You, you may love it. You may not like it, but it's it's an interesting movie. I, I'm just curious to know what people think about that movie. But back to your Red Pill Expo. Check it out, redpillexpo.net. Um, you know, at least support Ed and his, uh, you know, his movement and, and all the good that he's trying to do in the world. So with that, Ed, any last comments or things you want to share with our listeners before we close here? All I can think of right now are two things. Question authority and take the red pill. Take the red pill. Love it. Tell our listeners how they can find out more information about you and get your book, because I know that um, some people might be curious about the creature from Jekyll Island. Yeah, thank you. We we got a whole bunch of websites. So the the commercial website where we have uh, books and uh, documentary films and recordings on this sort of information is called Reality Zone. So that's realityzone.com. Okay. And you find all of my books and all of our videos and a hundred different items there that are handpicked pretty much by me. I think they're good. They're well worth your attention. So that's realityzone.com. Um, the sponsoring organization for the Red Pill, Organ- uh, Red Pill Expo is uh, Freedom Force International. If you want to get, that's our think tank. That's where we start talking about, okay, how are we going to solve the problems of the world? What do we believe in? What's our program? Deeper than just, oh, these guys are bad. We got to stop that. We, in order to defeat evil, you have to you have to know what you believe in. Make sure that you don't slip into that same category. You know, you have to deal with questions like, well, what happens after we win? How do we know that we or our followers won't be corrupted the same way that these people we're opposing today were corrupted? We have to think about that and build the mechanisms so that that cannot happen. This is all the discussion, the kind of discussion you'll find at Red, I mean, excuse me, at freedomforceinternational.org. That's our think tank. And of course, Red Pill uh, Expo, we've just talked about that. That's redpillexpo.net. And then, of course, the thing we're building right now is the Red Pill University, which is kind of like uh, Red Pill Expo on steroids, except it's all year long. And also, locally, we're sta- hoping to establish campuses in every local community literally around the world. So there are plenty of websites to go to, realityzone.com. 
and we got redpillexpo.net, redpilluniversity.org, and freedomforceinternational.org. That's enough. It, it amazes me how much you're actually doing at the age you're at. It's I'm 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 amazed. It's it's incredible. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you. The one, the only, G. Edward Griffin. Ed, thank you for coming on the show. We'll put all the links in the show notes. And thanks for coming on. And I appreciate your time. All right. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Are you on track to achieve your financial goals? Income-producing real estate is the most historically proven way to accumulate wealth and has created more financial freedom than any other means. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best turnkey cash flow rental properties. Our simple proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly income. Get your free strategy session with our knowledgeable investment counselors at noradarealestate.com. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.